You know that we couldn't just let a sleeping fish lie, right? In today's edition to What's in Your Pantry series, we're prepared to catch and release some history about two umami favorites with a slightly fishy background. What in the world would we do without fish sauce or Worcestershire sauce? Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hi, Leigh. Hey, Kim. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. I'm excited for this uh, beautiful, light spring Easter weekend that we're experiencing here in Seattle. How are you? Where are you? I am good, and I'm very excited to experience this lovely spring weekend, too. We are actually recording on the Easter weekend. It also happens to be the anniversary of my mother's passing. We are all getting together this weekend in various fashions to celebrate life, celebrate resurrection, celebrate spring. I think it's going to be a really beautiful weekend. My heart and thoughts are with all of you, all of us. So happy Easter, everybody. Happy all the wonderful spring celebrations that we have that we've talked about. Happy Passover to those who celebrate Passover. This will all be in the past, but we're wishing you that today. So we need to talk for a few minutes about garum, a fermented fish sauce used as a condiment and sometimes as a medicine in the cuisines of Phoenicia, ancient Greece, Rome, Carthage, and later Byzantium. Lay, what can you tell me about garum and its relationship to Worcestershire sauce? Oh, I have a little bit of information that relates these two together. But before I do, I just want to say that what I found really interesting about this episode when we were researching it, we both chose an item and it was at random, but they are both so related. And I just find that fascinating because they both employ (laughs) the fermentation of fish in some fashion. And the pantry item that I'm going to talk about today was actually suggested by our listener, Jenny Field. Thank you, Jenny, for the suggestion. And I hope you have a lovely walk. Jenny actually listens to the As We podcasts on her daily walks. Thanks, Jenny. So first, a little pronunciation lesson. It's not Worcestershire. It's not Worcestershire. It's Worcestershire. Worcestershire. Now, the relation to fish sauce and Worcestershire. When we're talking about these fish sauces, there are so many cultures that actually ferment fish into some type of a sauce. And I think often we think about Southeast and Eastern Asian cultures, but there are also a lot of European cultures that ferment fish into a sauce. Now, the ancient Romans fermented a sauce called, as you mentioned, garum. According to Pliny the Elder, it consists of the guts of fish and other parts that would otherwise be considered refuse. So that garum is really a liquor of putrefaction. Mm. Yum. Yummy. Yeah. Not a description that the marketing department probably would have used, but it is essentially pretty accurate. This sauce is and was super prevalent in classic Roman cooking. It was used by all social classes, and as such, it was made in varying grades. 
the most expensive being noble garum, and it was made by ladling the liquid from the top of the barrel, leaving fish and all the rest of the stuff, which was used by the poor people to season their dishes. So you kind of had this cream of the crop type of system that was going on, right? Right. Garum making was also a very important economic industry of the time. It was a key economic factor for Pompeii. They've actually found amphoras buried in Pompeii that contained the residue of garum. It was a major export from Hispania to Rome, and there was this prestige around it. Cities were identified by their ability to produce this fermented fish sauce. The best garum, it is said, came from Cartagena and Gaddis. It was also made in much the same fashion from about 700 BC until the 16th century, which is, right, same recipe, same methods for that many centuries. In the 16th century, makers started to substitute anchovies for the traditional mackerel, and they cut out the innards. See what I did there? That was a good pun. (laughs) Yes, I love a good pun. (laughs) Essentially, they eliminated the innards from the recipe. Now to the relationship between Worcestershire and garum. Again, they're both fermented sauces. Did garum influence the Worcestershire recipe? Maybe, but there's no clear indications of that. But Worcestershire predecessors may have influenced taste buds that resulted in the preference for this sauce. I mean, it again, there's no clear relationship between the two. So I've, I've been thinking a lot about this flavor thing in relationship to this episode. How much food do we eat today is actually the result of how we ate food and the, the flavors that we created for human beings. Like that, When I say we, I mean like us as humans. How much of that are traditions that we, we actually created centuries ago when we discovered, hey, this food tastes good with this food? Right. And what would have happened if we had done something differently and like discovered that peanuts went great with black licorice? That could have been a flavor profile that we all love now. But yeah, we've been using this stuff for ages all around the world in different ways. But it all actually kind of does come back to sort of a prototype recipe of fish and salt. Yeah, for but sure. I, tell me more about Worcestershire. So more about right Worcestershire. Worcestershire. You did. Yes. So Worcestershire <laughs> originated in the town of Worcester, England, and it was created by two chemists, John Wheelie Leah and William Henry Perrin. The Leon and Perrin website indicates that around 1837, the two gentlemen concocted a new condiment after a local nobleman identified in some accounts as Arthur Marcus Cecil Sandys, the third Baron of Sandys, requested that they make up a recipe for a sauce that he had enjoyed while he was in India. The two chemists set to work using the description that this nobleman had provided to them. They, however, found the concoction so distasteful that they relegated it to the basement. Now, I'm not entirely sure why they wouldn't have thrown it out if it was so distasteful, (laughs) but... It did turn into a happy accident when, after hiding in the basement for about 18 months, it had matured into a delicious sauce. So delicious, in fact, that they decided to put it on sale. So, okay, okay, time out. This is worthy of an interruption. You're telling me that somebody mixed together a sauce, Mm. thought it was gross, Mm -hmm. stuck it in the basement, Mm -hmm. forgot about it. I'm using air quotes here. Forgot about it. 18 months later, tidying up the basement, mm-hmm. discovered the set-aside sauce and decided to taste it to see if it got any better. Yes. 
Okay. And I can't imagine <laughs> that, that tracks. It, right. Absolutely tracks because why not? <laughs> but thank God we're morons, right? Because <laughs> I love Worcestershire. Um, sorry, there's a family joke where we do know how to pronounce it, apparently, but we also like to not pronounce it correctly. I mean, it's fantastic, right? Mm. The sauce is great. I've had a bottle in every cupboard in every house I've ever lived in since before I was born. Talk about a happy accident right. of discovering this, because by all accounts, this should not be, except that somebody was dumb enough to try a fermented thing. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. Please continue. Yeah. So the process of making Worcestershire sauce involves packing onions and garlic. This is much in the same fashion as garum was made, just different types of ingredients. So they pack the onions and garlic, which were the main ingredients. The actual recipe is a secret and guarded by a select few. I added the guarded by, you know, for dramatic effect. I don't know if it's guarded, but it is a secret. Anyway, the onions and garlic are packed into barrels. They're covered with malt vinegar and allowed to mature. The anchovy are packed in salt and they're matured separately from the onions and garlic. And then when all of the ingredients have soaked, marinated and matured the right amount of time, again, super secret, they're mixed together in a bigger vat and matured even further. Once the maturation has been determined to be complete, which the website indicates is a total of about 18 months, it's bottled and it's shipped to over 130 countries. Nice. Yeah. Something that I found really interesting is that the ingredients for the sauce that's shipped and sold in the United States has distilled white vinegar rather than the malt vinegar and is a slightly different recipe based upon the ingredients label than that in the UK. The ones here in the state actually have higher amounts of sugar and salt, which just validates our conversations about flavor and taste preferences for different countries and regions. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I didn't even know. I didn't even know you were going to bring that up. When it comes to the packaging, you might ask, what is the paper wrapper about? What is the paper wrapper about? I'm so glad that you asked. (laughs) Apparently, this is a throwback to when it was shipped, literally in ships, crossing tumultuous seas to protect the glass from breaking during these voyages. So they have just continued that tradition. I love it. Now, here's a couple of fun food facts about Worcestershire sauce. The British Museum's biography of Lord Marcus Sandys, the dude that allegedly commissioned this sauce after enjoying it in India, it doesn't mention him ever being in India or acting as the governor, as some accounts that I came across indicated. Fun fact number two, some of the original advertising indicated the claim to make your hair grow beautiful. Fun fact (laughs) number three, the Lee and Perrins company lost the rights to the trademark Worcestershire sauce in 1876. So essentially, anyone can manufacture a sauce and market it as Worcestershire sauce. Lee and Perrins, the company, has actually gone through many hands and is now owned by the Heinz Company, the Heinz Corporation. Now, when it comes to the taste of Worcestershire, it may be a little bit of a mystery for some of us to describe, but the French have no problem putting it into words. We detect allspice or clove, and a slightly grassy echo of celery seed that flaunts a tanginess that isn't as specifically vinegary, but is clear and bright nonetheless, evened out with a mid-level sweetness. 
Now, the BBC Food describes it as a classic English bottled sauce from the 19th century when strongly flavored sauces were used to hide a multitude mm-hmm. of sins. It is a thin, spicy, dark brown fermented sauce made from a variety of ingredients, including anchovies, shallots, garlic, soy sauce, tamarind, salt, and vinegar, which is left to age in barrels. I can, however, sum it up in one word. It's umami. As in umami, it's delicious. (laughs) And a perfect ingredient to include in Bloody Marys. As a matter of fact, we have a couple of links to Bloody Mary recipes in the show notes, as well as some other recipes that use this fishy sauce. So make sure that you check them out. The, The fun fact number two about it makes your hair beautiful is really funny to me. In part because in, in my reading and my research a little bit on garum because garum is the predecessor to fish sauce that I'm going to talk mm-hmm. about. One of the medicinal uses was hair removal. That made me laugh because I was thinking like people putting this fermented sauce on their legs effectively, oh! and, like it, like removing hair. Like I'm that's what I'm thinking about. So it's funny that it's basically both. I, I suppose we apparently you get great hair growing but then you can burn it off i i don't know talking about fish sauce is a little like talking about something as elemental and universal as butter or tomato sauce there are certainly variations by continent country region but nearly every country within the southeastern asia diaspora uses fish sauce within its cuisine and it's ubiquitous and yet there are slight variations with that i'm going to try to talk about fish sauce as i know and love it i'm not an expert but i am an enthusiast so Hang in there with me and maybe everyone will be an enthusiast by the time we're done. So I'm really a particular fan of Southeast and East Asian foods. I'm talking about stuff from Thailand, Korea, Japan, China. It's really funny because I, outside of eating in restaurants, I did not grow up with these flavors, these foods. This is new to me, but the minute I put something in my mouth, I loved it. I think it's the umame, this is delicious (laughs) side of it. It just knocks my socks off. So I've been trying over the years to learn how to make these food traditions at home. And I keep a bottle of Vietnamese fish sauce in my pantry for our frequent stir fry suppers. And less frequently, I I try to make a Thai red curry. But this is a condiment that I don't really know that much about. It means I've got this bottle in my cupboard, but I don't know much about its provenance or its history. So I was really excited to talk about this today. And my research of fish sauce brought me back to that ancient Roman garum with slight variations happening in ancient China. And we're talking 1050 to 771 BC, give or take a couple of years, where the Zhu dynasty used a condiment composed largely from fermented fish, soybeans, and salt. And by the Han dynasty, That ended up diverging into two different sauces. Soybeans started to be fermented without the fish, and that dish turned into soy paste and soy sauce, as we know it. By 100 BC, give or take a few decades, demand for fish sauce and paste decreased in China, but remained popular in Southeast Asia. According to one source that I reviewed, food scholars traditionally divide East Asia into two distinct condiment regions— separated by a, quote, bean-fish divide. Southeast Asia, mainly using fermented fish. We're talking Vietnam, Thailand, Cambodia, and Northeast Asia that uses basically many fermented beans, and we're talking 
China, Korea, and Japan. So at a certain point, the fish just departs. <laughs> There's also some speculation, too, that soybeans became just more of a prevalent force mm. in Northeast Asia because it was a huge trade commodity. At any rate, fish sauce did re-enter Chinese cuisine in the 17th and 18th centuries, brought back in from Vietnam and Cambodia by Chinese traders. Southeast Asian food really, I feel, really entered or re-entered the culinary consciousness in the United States with refugees and immigrants that came to these shores from Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, as well as the Philippines and Malaysia. Mm -hmm. And while Vietnamese and Korean foods are absolutely trending in the United States right now, it wasn't always an easy road for folks from these countries of origin to find the essential flavors that they remembered back in their homelands. The Red Boat fish sauce that I use utilizes black anchovies salted and fermented in wooden barrels for up to two years. So maybe not so, such a secret recipe as Worcestershire sauce. They're pretty, actually pretty open about the fact that their sauce is only these things. And there is a story in the Red Boat fish sauce cookbook, and there's a link to that in our show notes, where the author describes her family's immigration process and the importance of finding the right flavors. Quote, in the interim of their immigration experience, we missed our mother and her cooking so much that she sent us recipes. We picked up fish sauce at our local markets as she directed, but those bottles never smelled like the fish sauce we were used to. And our meals never smelled like home and didn't taste like it either. But we didn't think we had an ingredient problem. We thought we were the problem. No one can ever cook the way mom cooks. My mom finally joined us in 1990 Bearing with her a small handwritten book of recipes, she eventually passed down to us. Her cooking remains delicious, but dishes just didn't have the same fragrances as they once did in Vietnam. That's when we finally figured it out. The fish sauce here just wasn't the same as the fish sauce there. End quote. And that's what got me thinking about this idea of, well, what do we become accustomed to and what do we build in our memories, both real and imaginary, about the foods that we eat? How do we know that what we're eating actually tastes right? Because taste is subjective. You know, I'm thinking about Worcestershire sauce. My my predominant thoughts about Worcestershire is that I taste vinegar and pepper right off the bat. Right. I've never thought that oh, I might be tasting allspice. I might be tasting onions and garlic, although that's not that much of a surprise. But I'm sitting here thinking, oh my goodness, what does Worcestershire sauce taste like other than Worcestershire sauce? And I'm pressed to like think of it because it just is what it is. But to have these experiences and to be able to tell the fish sauce here in the States is not the way that I'm used to having it from Vietnam. It's just fascinating to me. I think one of the things that struck me is that when we were doing this research, I had no idea that this was really a fermented fish sauce that Worcestershire, because we had it in our refrigerator all the time. It's always been, like you said, it's always been in the refrigerator. We've always used it. So it was interesting to determine that was actually a fermented fish sauce. Yeah, I had no idea until just now. And now it makes complete sense. Mm -hmm. But it, it goes to show just you don't always know about these things. They're not self-evident until you start to think about them or look into them or kind of start to puzzle it out. In researching for this episode and thinking about the flavors and the foods it would go with, in addition to my aforementioned stir fries, I'm also experimenting with putting a little fish sauce into a marinara. And I'm all set to try a fish sauce Bloody Mary recipe. And I've planted, I hope, a bumper crop of cherry tomatoes this year. So I'm really looking forward to experimenting what I can do with fresh tomatoes and fish sauce. 
And we're especially loving sautéed and roasted spring vegetables in mm. and on everything right now. And just a little hint of that umami can really bring out that kind of crisp, fresh, green spring flavor that we all love. I definitely want to caution, as is the case with Worcestershire sauce, too. And I know we don't often give you, like, cooking advice on this program, but a little goes a long way. Right. So feel free to experiment, but be aware that you are not going to be dumping quarter cup. Use a light hand to start because it is a flavor bomb. Yes. And it definitely enhances things once you start using it, you'll miss it when you don't use it, but start small. So yeah, fish sauce is one of those, it's just an ancient recipe. It is. People have been using fish for centuries. But you kind of think about how crazy it is that as a species, we just go around eating everything. Well, yeah, for survival, right? <laughs> I mean, it's an interesting conversation to have. And we've talked about so many of these types of things like oysters. Who was the first person to try an oyster? Who was the first person to figure out that you could actually open an oyster and there was something inside? The mm-hmm. other one that we, Eric, my husband and I talked about the other day with a couple was there are dishes that require you to cook them at least five times before they're not poisonous. How on right? earth did that process happen? What did that look like? Yeah. I, and again, I'm, it's hit my funny bone about Worcestershire sauce in the basement. Human beings, we have this curiosity, this insatiable <laughs> hunger for what can I eat? Is it going to kill me? Is it going to make me is it going to make me better or stronger right. or more mm-hmm. more fertile? Is mm-hmm. it going to give me great hair? Is it going to take the hair off of my body? Time and time again, I'm always struck by the invention of these things that's just sort of by our modern food safety standards, and we have mm. talked about that. Right. We Who would do this now? Who would make a sauce, stick it in the cupboard or the basement, come back to it 18 months later and be willing to test it? Mm-hmm. Food safety says, hell no. But of course, food safety is, is a modern thing. You're right, though, that the food safety is so ingrained in our modern culture. And I think to a point, it was ingrained in ancient cultures as well. I mean, this is why we have beer, because water wasn't yeah. safe. This is why we have wine, because again, water wasn't safe. But I think that we have taken those things and just compounded them so much that it is really interesting that we invent anything new food-wise because we're so terrified of that safety protocol. Yeah. I guess at a certain point, if it tastes good and you don't die, then it's <laughs> okay. And that's maybe how exactly how this fish sauce came to be. If yeah. it tasted good and you didn't die. There are, there are some interesting twists, though, on the fish sauce in terms of safety, and that is mercury and potassium. These are foods that, that, that actually are tested. What I did discover about my red boat fish sauce that I didn't know before was it has a 30 degrees N on the label, and I thought mm. that was the latitude. Yeah. Oh, I did too. Or the longitude. It's not. It's 30 degrees of potassium. It's actually a measure of how much potassium is in the fish sauce because it can be 30, 40, or 50. I, I fully thought that it was a longitude, latitude, and it actually has to do with the amount of potassium. And then, of course, you know, huge concern in our oceans around the world is mercury mm. and ocean acidification and you know the, the effects that we're having on our fish population. I mean, it's scary stuff considering how much fish we eat, even if we're not 
eating actual portions of fish. There's a lot of ocean life in a lot of what we eat. The other safety issue that you can run across with fish sauce specifically is that some of it does use shellfish. So if you have somebody who has a shrimp allergy, a shellfish allergy, it can be pretty scary. That's another thing to take into consideration. Again, we don't generally hand out any kind of cooking advice on (laughs) this podcast, but there are a couple of things that we wanted you to be aware of. Yeah, for sure. For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat and join our As We Eat community on Facebook. And so you don't miss an episode, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And it would make us super happy if you would share this podcast with a friend. Let them know how much you love it. And review and rate on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, and on Spotify, which now has a new rating function. We would love it if you could give us five stars, please. We also publish the As We Eat Journal on Substack. We would be so honored if you would support us by becoming a subscriber. We take tasty side trips through vintage recipes, community cookbooks, Leigh and Eric's travel stops, and Kim's rather random musings about food and food culture. (laughs) There are four subscription tiers. We're sure you'll find one that's perfect for you at asweeat.substack.com. Now, as we mentioned a couple of times in this episode, we don't generally give cooking advice. However, in the journal, we do have our recipe box roulette, which is our card game where we pull a recipe, we talk about the recipe, we share the recipe with you. So if you are looking for recipes, that's where you'll find them. You've been listening to the As We Eat podcast, part of our multi-platform storytelling project, exploring how food connects, defines, and inspires. Ooh.